from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're on the road from the World Pork Expo here in Des Moines, Iowa this week. Thanks to the pork checkoff. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. As drought concerns continue to grow across pockets of the Corn Belt, USDA adjusts its forecast for supply and demand. Two producers on very different paths, but both driving demand for U.S. pork. People, pigs, and planet, I think, are are really important uh, major topics. That's our Farm Journal report. A dynamic duo sniffing out smugglers and safeguarding pig farmers in the U.S. Yeah, you found it. Good boy! I don't believe that this is the great sandwich smuggling heist of 2023, right? And in John's world. Peak gasoline and ethanol. Now for the news, USDA providing its latest snapshot of the current crop in the ground. But with deteriorating demand, this was also under the microscope in the latest WASDE report this week. USDA adjusting both old crop and new crop ending stocks more than what analysts expected for corn and soybeans. Looking at old crop, USDA raising corn ending stocks by 35 million bushels from its May forecast. Old crop corn now forecast at 1.452 billion bushels. Soybeans were adjusted 15 million bushels higher to 230 million, but the agency did leave wheat unchanged from May at 598 million. USDA boosting new crop ending stocks estimate by 35 million bushels compared to May, now at 2.257 billion. Soybeans up 15 million bushels to 350 million. USDA noting a decline in exports for soybeans and corn, as well as more competition from South America. USDA also raising Brazil's current corn production estimate by 2 million metric tons and USDA making cuts to Argentina's crop, reducing both corn and soybeans by 2 million metric tons. So what was the biggest surprise from the report? That's what we asked Arlen Suderman of StoneX Group. Probably the biggest surprise to me was that they cut uh, soybean exports by 15 million bushels. I think that's justified. I just didn't expect USDA to do it this early in the ball game. Uh, shipments uh, have been there, but slowing because export sales have really been flat. And then lo and behold, today we get an export sale of 197,000 metric tons to unknown destinations. So what does that mean? How do we translate that? But overall, I think we're going to struggle with the big Brazilian crop. Suderman says despite what he called bearish revisions to soybeans in Friday's USDA report, soy oil demand was the big driver of prices Friday, helping boost those double digits. And farmers in Ukraine are assessing the damage after a major dam explosion in the southeastern part of the country. The critical dam and hydroelectric power station sets on the Dnipyar River. Ukraine accused Russian forces of blowing up the dam while Russian officials blamed Ukraine for it. Its destruction raised anxiety about a potential disruption to global grain supplies, pushing up some prices around the world. Also, there are massive agricultural fields in southern Ukraine where the dam burst. Well, dryness and drought concerns continue to push east, and it's showing up in crop conditions across the eastern Corn Belt. That's as crop ratings showed a large drop across those states this week. 45% of the U.S. corn crop is now covered in drought. That's an 11-point jump in just a week. Overall, USDA NAS says crop condition ratings across the U.S. saw a five-point drop this week. But look at the states with the biggest declines week over week. The same states that saw drought also expand. 
Illinois corn conditions dropped 19 points, now at 50% good to excellent. Indiana declined 10 points, and Ohio saw a seven-point drop. Well, El Nino could help bring drought relief yet this summer. On Thursday, NOAA declaring the arrival of El Nino. NOAA expects El Nino's influence on the U.S. to be weak during the summer, but more pronounced in the late fall through spring. By winter, NOAA says there's an 84% chance of greater than a moderate strength El Nino and a 56% chance of a strong El Nino developing. The U.S. Trade Representative announcing the office is requesting a formal dispute settlement consultations with Mexico. That's regarding its upcoming ban on U.S. GMO corn. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai saying the U.S. has repeatedly conveyed concerns that Mexico's biotech policies are not based on science. She says the ban would disrupt exports to the detriment of U.S. agricultural producers. Mexico's February decree specifically bans the use of GMO corn in tortillas or dough. It would also gradually ban the use of biotechnology corn in all products for human consumption and animal feed. Discussions between U.S. and Mexico to try and resolve the issue have been going on for months. Pork exports exploded in March, and USDA released an updated look at export demand, with the industry hoping for a repeat performance. Well, despite the continued slowdown in China, U.S. Meat Export Federation says pork exports climbed 15% year-over-year in April. The value? That increased 10%. Now, beef exports continue to trend lower, which USMEF says was expected considering last year was a record for beef. Also, drought's impact on U.S. beef supplies that is eating into overall exports this year. Cattle traders were wondering what to expect this week. That's after last week's average cash cattle price climbed near record highs. According to Drovers, the strong cash cattle bids continued this week. That's after cash cattle prices jumped in all regions the week prior, trading $185 to $188 per hundredweight in the north and jumping as much as $9 per hundredweight in the south. Part of that bullishness that's it for the news. Well, here in Iowa, the U.S. Drought Monitor shows more than 90% of the state is covered in dryness or drought. We'll have a check of the forecast to see if rain is on the way. That's next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 1200 series top dog forage boxes now feature new heavy-duty dual gearbox driven apron chains and are available in 36 and 40-foot models. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Matt Engelbrecht joining us from the studios in South Bend, Indiana. Matt, USDA's crop conditions rating really took a dive this week due to dryness. And Matt, you talking about that blocking high last week, is that still in place? Yeah, Tyne, that's a great question regarding the overall pattern. Uh, for the last, I'd say, month, we've had some kind of blocking pattern set up across the United States, which has caused a lot of rain for some and no rain for others. And you start to see that drought monitor, that updated drought monitor. Uh, what we're hoping is with that upper level low that's bringing that wildfire smoke down in portions of the northeast, this upper level low will start to break free and work off to the northeast as uh, we kind of kick it that back out into the Atlantic. That should start mixing 
mixing up the jet stream. What we want to see is more north to south movement with the jet stream that gives us not only some energy for some showers uh, and even some heavier downpours, but also brings in the much needed moisture to create those showers and thunderstorms. Unfortunately, not seeing much in the way of moisture with the uh, latest drought monitor. Uh, no longer are we in this like severe or extreme, but we're maxing the legend out uh, this weekend in the exceptional category for some droughts across the area. Also expanding that into portions of Florida. We're starting to see that dry, moderate, if not severe drought uh, showing up in the Sunshine State. So the overall outlook, the precipitation outlook, this is June 15th. We're in the middle of June. We're going towards the late stages of June and possibly into July. This looks a lot different than we've had the last month or so. Remember that dry air, that high pressure, that blocking pattern time was talking about set up over the same place, which is uh, the plains and back up here towards the uh, Canadian uh, United States border. Starting to mix it up to where there's a better, greater chance of some precipitation into Montana, uh, the four corner states, but extending in the Dakotas more so than we've seen the last three to four weeks. Dry pattern still setting up into Texas and Louisiana. So we're kind of flipping where we've seen the wettest air or the wettest conditions and the driest. The problem is we're back into this extreme situation. It's not just enough. It's more than we need or it's none at all with that pattern in the middle part of June. Temperature forecast reflecting another ridge of high pressure building the middle part of the month. And that's why these above average high temperatures or normal temperatures above normal temperatures extend back up here into Canada and also the United States. Extremely high probability of well above average temperatures into Texas, Louisiana, and even into Florida. Uh, now, the, the above average temperatures does not mean we'll completely shut off the faucet. Uh, with the warmer conditions, it is possible that if we get that north to south movement with the jet stream, it'll help bring in some of that Gulf moisture and extend it back up here towards the north. But this is certainly not what you want to see uh, when you're still in an exceptional drought, which is above average high temperatures. As for that jet stream, so we get through the weekend, that low finally kicks out. You'll see another one kind of circle back into the Midwest with a ridge of high pressure building. This is the above average temperature starting to extend back in and across the United States by the middle part and late stages of the work week. Thanks, Matt. Well, when we come back, cash pork prices have struggled lately, but what could cause prices to change course? Our marketing roundtable guests this week from World Pork Expo include Aaron Borer, Dermot Hayes, and Steve Meyer. They join me next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by the Pork Checkoff. Farming impacts all areas of life and your well-being matters. So here's a reminder to take a break, call a friend, and prioritize your mental health. For more information, visit porkcheckoff.org. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here at World Pork Expo in Des Moines. Again, we are excited to be here with Pork Checkoff and talking uh, not only about prices, but demand. A lot of things to cover with Dermot Hayes, Steve Meyer, as well as Aaron Bohr today. But Dermot, let's start with you, because most recently, when we look at this Prop 12 ruling from the Supreme Court, that just pressured prices. Is that justified or is there too much anticipation right now? It, it, it should just pressure prices because the pork that would otherwise have moved into California will back up in the U.S. domestic market. And that's a, a concern. And uh, Steve and, and Lee have calculated that that could be as much as 5% or even more of our, of our national pork production. So it will be like losing a 5% export market if it happens. Personally, I don't think they'll uh, allow that kind of chaos to occur as of early July, and they'll push it back by another six months. But will six months, will that give us enough time, Steve? 
No, not enough. It'll give us some time, though, and so there, it shouldn't be as impactful if you delay it for six months as it is if you start on July 2nd, but I don't think it will give us the time to get to, you know, California accounts for about 14% of our consumption, and uh, we probably don't have half of that ready to go into there at this point. There's a bright spot when it comes to the pork industry, and that is export. So as you look at the latest export numbers that just came out from USDA, U.S. Meat Export Federation has been through that. March was a really good month. Was April as good as March? Yeah, April was still spectacular. So April was up 14.5% year on year. The numbers pulled back a bit from the huge March number, um, but up 14.5% year on year. And January through April, that puts us up 14% for U.S. pork and variety meat exports. And um, essentially, you know, playing out as we'd expected, as the U.S. regained our competitiveness and we overtake or, or regain some of the market share that Europe had taken from us. Yeah, so we know some of the challenges right now uh, when, you, when you look at, at Europe. So, Dermot, what is your outlook for exports? Can we continue this momentum? I, I believe we can. Um, as Aaron knows, uh, Europe has cut back on its pork production by about 2.5 million tons, and that is a huge number. And uh, China has lower pork prices now, and it's unknown why, but my suspicion is that they're liquidating ahead of an African fever outbreak. So you get lower export potential out of Europe and more import demand in China. Uh, and we can backfill uh, into countries that Europe would have had and potentially send some more product to China too. So I'm a little bit more optimistic even than Aaron on, on exports. Demand is always such a strong driver, but why aren't pork producers seeing that at the at price level, I mean, you look at these break-evens today, and it is not pretty, Steve. Well, no, and the break e you know, on the one hand, you have break-evens, which are driven by cost of production, and we've had a fundamental change in the markets for corn and soybeans in the United States, driven mainly by carbon policy and uh, subsidies paid for biodiesel and those kinds of things that have driven those costs up. We have a short crop in Argentina that's, that's played into that. And so you've got break-even costs in the $90 range out through 2024 right now compared to $63 back before 2020. So uh, that's, that's a fundamental thing that's changed, and we don't think that that's going to get a lot better over the next three or four years. I mean, we're, we're going to have to cover those costs. What are you looking at, Aaron? What is your forecast? How much more could we see exports grow yet this year for pork? Yeah, so USMEF's export forecast is up 8%. And we see that um, U.S. retaking market share again from Europe, and it is not China-driven. So just to clarify right. for USMEF, it is not China-driven. It's everywhere else, and that is literally basically everywhere else. So we still have strong growth in Latin America. That's been our real bright spot. But then that additional incremental growth is in kind of the Asian markets, which are vast. So Japan, Korea, Philippines, Malaysia, Taiwan, Australia, we are coming back strong in all of those markets as well. And so you have a dynamic where Latin America is still buying strong. Your Asian customers are back and looking for U.S. pork. And that is helping us be able to export at strong prices. All right. Well, we are just getting started. So stay with us. We'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. The evolution of ethanol. That's John's world this week. 
Our market analysts haven't been as much fun as usual lately, although grain producers have quietly marveled for months at the relative strength of prices, given the ample carryover figures for most crops. This spring's brisk planting start has shifted the anticipation of those supply numbers. So much so, the growers are watching with the increasing dryness with mixed emotion. Drought is a lamentable price lifter, although we prefer it would be anywhere but our farm. These anxieties are also based on unexciting demand projections. No sector is more uneasy than the ethanol industry. One reason is gasoline demand, which directly determines ethanol use. It may have peaked in the U.S. In fact, we're back to using the same amount as two decades ago. Ordinarily, gas demand drops because people don't drive as many miles. And the recession and COVID certainly affected the miles driven. But the gas decline from 21 to 22, while small, occurred while people drove more. The biggest reason is the steady requirement to improve engine mileage. The mileage boosts were mandated, but let's face it, what manufacturer or consumer is going to go back to the gas guzzler? Those of us who remember single-digit mileage pickups have been hooked on better economy, along with a myriad of other engine advances, including more horsepower. This trend took a long time to show up, as more efficient vehicles methodically but slowly replaced guzzlers in international fleet. The turnover averages about 7 to 8% per year. As you can see, real-world mileage reinforces the price sticker numbers, which consumers tend to discount. Note the slope of the curves and the lack of indication of trend change. By the way, I have no idea what's up with many bands, however, to move too many USB outlets, I'd guess. Analysts at Wall Street, from whom I shamelessly borrowed these graphs, believe we're seeing the first hint of an EV effect on gasoline consumption. Gasoline sales have likely peaked, while annual EV sales of all kinds are up 7% nationally from essentially zero just a few years ago. The other clue is electricity sales have nudged above a 15-year plateau at the same time. Now, to be sure, other factors contribute to this, crypto mining and climate change air conditioning demand for two. However, early monthly numbers for 2023 don't show any sign of gas sales ramping up and mileage driven are about the same. Ethanol's mandate fundamentally changed Midwest agriculture. It could do that again, but in a very different way. Thanks, John. Well, we need to take a quick break, and then we don't have to travel too far for Tractor Tales this week. Machinery Pete gives us a look at a farm all from right here in Iowa. Tractor Tales is next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're going to check out a classic farm all that's retired, but it still gets the job done. This tractor here, I bought it in uh, 79 and uh, it's been modified quite a little bit as far as uh, pumps. It's got three different pumps on it, one to run the post grabber on the back and one to drive uh, to run the post driver and then one for the power steering. So it's got three different, it's got power steering for the and then it's got, it's got a big toolbox on it to stand on and haul stuff. A good friend of mine, I, I had no trouble with the motor. It's original motor since, I've never touched motor since 79. 
it's getting a little weak, but the transmission had a, a guy by the name of Bill Hayes help me fix it. He's deceased now, but he was right up his alley to come and do it, and he did. So, but it's been a really good tractor and, and very little trouble. I'm actually a John Deere guy. I thought, well, this is reasonable to buy, and, it, and uh, I can put stuff on the front and make it work. You know, I don't have lift arms, so it, it's more or less just kind of a tractor that works good for this. I'll probably end up keeping the tractor, and, and uh, it'll probably stay at my dad's place because he's got a lot of fencing to do up there. We try to do 80 rod a year up there, and uh, I don't have a lot of money wrapped up in it, and, and uh, it's just park it. Well, whether it's grilling or exports, there's no denying that demand is a major driver for the U.S. pork industry. Up next, we're following two producers and their very different journeys to the farm. But their common goal is growing hunger for U.S. pork. That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by the Pork Checkoff. Farming impacts all areas of life and your well-being matters. So here's a reminder to take a break, call a friend, and prioritize your mental health. For more information, visit porkcheckoff.org. Welcome back. Well, there's a lot of talk about hog supplies here at World Pork Expo, but there's no denying demand is a major driver for the U.S. pork industry. And we're following two producers in their very different journeys to the farm this weekend. But their common goal in growing hunger for U.S. pork. Take a trip across Ohio and you'll meet two pork producers whose journeys to the farm have been on two very different paths. Philip Horde, born and raised on his Ohio family's farm, and Jessica Campbell, a first-generation farmer. I am one of the family members that has been farming uh, in our community for over a hundred years. The background of our farm is that it was started, we say, with Hogs and Hope in 2013. Jessica's journey started when she bought her first 55 acres and rented it out for row crops. But her dream was to be a farmer herself. The pork is a little different. It's in the woodlot. They have 11 acres to run, but also a barn to go into as well, primarily Berkshire and Duroc. And in 2013, she made the switch to go niche and Carroll Creek Farms was born. It's not that we really feel that you have to raise pigs or other animals one way or the other. It's not that at all. But being that we're between Cincinnati and Dayton, we knew if we were going to be an operational farm for a legacy more than just our generation, we needed to have it work with the ecosystem here, which is ever urbanizing. It's not just how the animals are raised that can be unique, but also how the meat is sold. There's a variety of different ways that people can buy from Carroll Creek. So the first is the meat retreat. We have our home farm open to the public every day, seven days a week, where we just trust people. So they come, they come down our driveway and we have the honor system where they can check themselves out and grab whatever meats they need for the day and take off. The old-fashioned honor system at the farm, while also selling at a few farmers markets and online. For Horde, his family's pig farm is more traditional. A larger operation in north central Ohio, Horde didn't know if farming was even what he wanted to do. One of the things I did when I got into college was really uh, do some searching on what I liked. He dabbled in jobs off the farm, but he says it finally became clear his calling in life was to be on his family farm. I spent some different 
uh, times in different parts of our business, and uh, which really helped shape uh, you know my view and, and my uh, skills. When he first came back, his main focus was production. That's until the fifth generation pig farmer carved out his own specialty, finding ways to serve up more demand for pork. In the industry where very few producers are vertically integrated, um, it's extremely important that we know where our product's going and what that product looks like. Hord says anything he does here has to provide value. And so over time, he worked with various organizations to add a new flavor to what their farm offers, going straight to the source. Talking directly to retailers and food service individuals that are out there making decisions about where our product goes is very important because uh, without them and without uh, their, their work and, and our product getting on the shelves, um, we wouldn't be a viable industry. We wouldn't have a business um, and, a, and a farm here. Whether it's having conversations with retailers or bringing groups out to their farm, Hort is a true believer in pulling the curtain back on their operation. Our opinion and our perspective on that is, is that why not be connected and why not be involved and, and be a resource and uh, answer questions. While Hord and Campbell's operations may look different, driving demand is where their paths intersect. Campbell isn't just a pig farmer herself, but an ag lender, a mom of two, with another on the way. And she sees ground pork as a huge opportunity for growth. I think moving into that space where it's more ready to eat, quick and easy, but really using that base product and just flavoring ground pork well, is gonna provide a world of opportunity for the future. Campbell serves on the National Pork Board, traveling internationally to help develop those connections and relationships worldwide. The importers really wanted a personalized story about our farm. She said during one of her first trips abroad, she was amazed with how much brand recognition other countries have for U.S. pork. We went to multiple grocery stores in Colombia and Panama, and I'm just very impressed how they're branding our product as premium and con continually increasing the exports. Campbell focuses on demand around the globe while Hort is looking to grow that hunger for U.S. pork here at home. They're genuinely curious to find that a lot of our farms are going to be what we believe to be carbon uh, neutral, if not carbon negative. Uh, and that's a really awesome story to be able to tell. Hord says their farm can now put numbers behind that story. So things through technologies, um, different processes and procedures we've done on the farm and we've learned over time, we can tell that story with a lot of uh, confidence that we are a part of the solution and not necessarily part of a, of a problem. Some of those solutions are through small changes. On our farms in the birthing areas, we uh, converted from heat lamps, which were using heat bulbs, to heat mats. Um, because they use less electricity and, and also actually are providing a better environment for piglets. But in other areas, the hordes aren't changing what they do, just quantifying their impact through capturing data and communicating what it means. To tell how we're using that manure from the animals onto the fields, which grows their grain in that cycle of feeding that back to the animals in that same area. It's a, a really cool thing to talk about and a lot of people aren't aware of how that process works. As a young producer, Horde knows the work he's doing now could bring even more people to the table hungry for U.S. pork. People, pigs, and planet, I think, are, are really important uh, major topics. And it's building that confidence among consumers that could live on for generations to come, even on their own farms. When we're out there doing the hard work and building this business from scratch, it's really not as much about our generation, but setting up those boys for the next generation 
and ensuring that they have a viable operation to come back to. Well, as we told you earlier in the show, pork exports have been on fire this year, rebounding to reach one of the top 10 months ever. So why? Well, that's what we want to know from our economists this weekend. They will rejoin us as we continue our marketing discussion from World Pork Expo here in Des Moines, Iowa, next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here at World Pork Expo. Well, we just finished have taking a deep dive into two producers that are really helping drive pork demand. Domestically, you look at retail pork prices. Have we seen those shift at all, Dermot? Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some downward movement, uh, but it's been a very, very slow process, and it's frustrating for everybody. In an integrated system, if the farm price falls, then the retail price should fall too, if it's going to work efficiently. But when you get a wedge that, that grows like this in terms of retail margins, you're either charging more for the retail product than you need to, or you're, you're paying the producer less for the, the live animal and the carcass. And so I, I personally believe there's good, there, that it's still a competitive business, and some retailers are starting to pass along those low wholesale margins. They'll begin to compete with each other on specialing pork, and eventually that will, uh, in my opinion, cause this, this, this wide margin to slowly disappear back to more normal levels. Are we seeing some of these, these seasonal features with bacon and things, or what has to change in order to, to, to drive some more of this demand at the retail level here? Well, I think number one is uh, retailers have to see profit opportunities, and they have to take advantage of those. If uh, We have a weekly retail price series that comes out from AMS each week, and it's not perfect by any stretch, but we've seen a lot of variability in that in recent weeks. I mean, it kind of went up and down and up and down, and Dermot, to your point, you know, that tells me that there's some featuring going on out there that uh, for individual stores will say, we need more pork if we're going to feature, and they're going to go out and start bidding up uh, some wholesale prices and bring this cutout value up. And that's really the answer. I mean, you know, we can all talk about, well, they need to cut retail prices. I'm in the camp that, you know, um, number one is if you look at the industry in, in, whole, in total, uh, we're selling all that we make right now. And so there, that leaves you in this thing, how much do you cut retail prices? Well, you cut it to compete with your rival store down the, down the road. And so there is some of that that goes on, but the, the ultimate goal is to get some more value on this cutout value. We've been stuck in this $80 range for a while, and, and our forecasts right now say that that's kind of where we're going to be. Well, speaking of some of the change, we see the trade representative officially launch a trade dispute with, with Mexico. We know how vital of a customer Mexico is. Could we see some fallout on other key agricultural exports like pork? We definitely need the rock-solid relationship between U.S., and Mexico. And so too early for me to say anything. Obviously in US agriculture, we also want, you know, Mexico to abide by the science. So um, there's that side of it as well in needing Mexico to accept GMO corn. But but certainly we have seen pork being used in retaliation in the past. So um, again, I don't it's too early to say that I'm worried about it, but yeah, always watching. Yeah, definitely. All right, Dermot, when you look at a lot of the things that, that Steve was talking about and just these high input costs, do you think we will see some contraction take place in the U.S. hog herd? Well, obviously, we can't keep losing $40 an animal. So something has to happen. Something has to give. We, we, we're not going to stay losing $40 an animal for 10 years. Uh, and uh, what I think is going to give is, uh, especially some of the larger units, are, are cutting their sound numbers. So I added up anecdotal evidence of, of that, and it's about 3% of sound numbers. And that was just some of the larger ones. But if you look at the in, in, independence, that could get up to 5%, and that would really help.
but, but that's not asking people to do that. We're not trying to coordinate no. here, yeah. but we're just we're reporting uh, anecdotal information. Yeah, Steve, anything you want to add to that as we look to the next Hogs and Pigs report? Well, I think the important thing that Dermot said was, you know, the market, and the market includes suppliers and demanders and users, the market won't allow this thing to go forever losing that kind of money. So the market is going to force some of these changes. And I'm like, Dermot, we're not asking anybody to make changes, but the market is going to dictate that we put a smaller quantity of product on the marketplace in the future. Uh, Lee Schultz's estimated costs and returns at Iowa State would indicate that right now, based on futures prices, this year may be worse than 1998 from a profit standpoint. So um, you can't stand that forever. Steve, Aaron, Dermot, thank you so much for joining us this week from World Pork Expo. We appreciate it. Let's take a break, and we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, biosecurity happens at every level of the pork industry and at every show. And you've probably heard in the news about attempts to smuggle meat products into the U.S. In 2019, the Fed stopped 1 million pounds of pork from entering the U.S. illegally from China at a port. But how are some of those products detected and ultimately stopped? This weekend, Farm Journal National videographer Russ Natusco introduces us to the Beagle Brigade. My name is Martin Schultz. I'm a Customs and Border Protection Agriculture Specialist. This is Agriculture Detection Dog Soul. Ready to do some work? The USDA is the organization that will source the dogs and do the initial training. Our mission is to safeguard American agriculture, and we do so by identifying the various uh, fruits and vegetables and meats that people are bringing into the country. So find it. We employ dogs that can track scent and have them walk around, and then that helps us to identify more of the potential pathways that the pathogens and pests could enter the country via the passenger baggage environment. Yeah, that one? Nope. The beagles work here in the passenger environment because they appear a little bit less threatening than some of the other large breeds. They also have amazing ability to differentiate the various scents that we're looking for. They're also highly food driven, so he'll do anything for a treat. Oh, that's good boy. The items that we saw on the table, that's only about a third of what they intercepted last night, the agriculture team here at Chicago. The United States port export industry right now is number one or number two in the world. For last year, it was $7.7 .7 billion worth of income generated for the country. And if him and I let in some pork that has some swine fever in it, right, that could devastate pork products here, right, and that's a lot of money lost. So just by giving him one little treat, right, we may help to protect and safeguard the agriculture. So it does have a sticker, but it doesn't say where it was produced. So these ones won't be allowed into the country either. We tell them, you know, why we prohibit the entry. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes they're still very frustrated about it. But the nature of it is, is that we can't identify that the items have met the import standards uh, set by the USDA to bring the items into the country. And if they fail to declare any of the items at that point, then we have the uh, justification to issue a penalty for failure to declare if we so choose. But, oop, whoop, hold on. Excuse me, ma'am, one moment. Where's the buddy? Oh yeah, good boy. Yeah, it looks like ham. All right, yeah, we'll take that one too. Good boy. Sit. Good boy. Sit. Oh, it's my sandwich. Good job, buddy. Sit. Yeah, you found it. Good boy. I don't believe that this is the great sandwich smuggling heist of 2023, right? It 
shocks me every day just how good he is able to track a scent throughout the hall. He gets paid lots and lots of treats. Yep. That's a good boy, Soul. You're doing so good, buddy. Thanks again to Ross Natesco for such a unique and behind the scenes look. Well, when we come back, John Phipps has customer support. Please stay with us. Got equipment to sell privately, but tired of scams and hassles? Visit machinerepeat.com and click sell mine. Machinerepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. What's the future of nuclear power? That's a question in customer support this week. Some questions today about nuclear power from regular viewer Ted Slezak in Owatonna, Minnesota. Statistics show that nuclear power has one of the lowest overall impacts on climate, the environment, and people of any method of electric power generation. Given your background, would you comment on the following? What is the current state of nuclear power generation technology in terms of efficiency, safety, and flexibility to locate a power station? Your thoughts on why this country seems reluctant to embrace nuclear? What sort of moonshot effort it would take to enter a crash program to build out regional nuclear power generating capacity with modern technology and the time involved to do so? Uh, first off, I'm not an unbiased on this subject. I have been a proponent of nuclear power since 1956, when my grandmother gave me our friend the Adam for my eighth birthday. My time on a nuclear submarine solidified my convictions. I can't answer all your questions. I'll do what I can here. It was also the first lesson I had in public risk perception. Nuclear power, despite all its economic and especially environmental benefits, ran into a wall of resistance built almost entirely of exaggerated doomsday scenarios. One of the most persuasive influences was the resurgence of comic book superheroes, believe it or not, Spider-Man in particular. While it sounds bizarre to say, the whole bit by a radioactive spider became woven into American culture, aided by thousands of cartoon jokes showing a deformed animal or human with cooling towers in the background. Add the internet, which could give a voice to uninformed or dishonest critics who magnified minuscule risks. Decades and gigawatts of safe operation proved powerless against popular imagination. The final blow is our dysfunctional infrastructure system, where political power resides largely in individuals and local governments blocking national goals. It's why we won't have high-speed rail, high-voltage DC transmission lines, or many new pipelines. There isn't enough money to overcome NIMBY attitudes that have hardened on the left and the right. We have neither the national will nor the cooperation ability to repeat a moonshot. Nuclear power may experience a rehabilitation in Europe, and it will provide a huge boost to China's growth as they've built dozens more reactor, reactors, but I can't see anything similar in our future. Thanks, John. Well, a perfectly healthy teenager dealt with a heavy dose of health issues that put her in a wheelchair. How she persevered to get back to the show ring in the middle of her ongoing health battle. That story is next. I was a perfect, healthy, normal teenage girl before all of this. That's Paisley Harden, a 16-year-old from Brock, Texas, who's an avid pig showman, golfer, FFA officer, and more. But on March 15th, her life changed as she knew it 
losing her ability to walk. And Jennifer Scheich, the Farm Journal's pork, spoke to Paisley and captured her gut-wrenching, heartwarming story. Jennifer, as I was reading every word, I mean, you just talk about someone who has perseverance. Her symptoms started in March, and then in April, she started having seizures. She had 18 non-epileptic episodes in just 24 hours. She was later diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome, which is something that impacts one out of every 200,000 people. There are still a lot of unanswered questions about what's causing Paisley's health issues, but she ultimately found a way to fight through and get back to the show ring this year with some vital help. With my OT, we worked up for that moment for about two weeks. We went up there twice to just walk around in the dirt, guarding myself in the ring because I will fall like if some like if, if a pig just barely touched me, I would probably fall if my OT wasn't there. And then if a pig touched me, I, it would like send my body in shock. Just an amazing individual. Her battle's not over, but to see what she has gone through and how she's persevered, how can they read more about her story? Well, you can go to porkbusiness.com or you can scan the QR code on your screen to read the full story and learn more about her journey. A lot of heartwarming stories right now in the pork industry. You continue to follow those. Jennifer, thank you. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. And a huge thank you to National Pork Board and the Pork Checkoff for hosting us from World Pork Expo here in Des Moines this week. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.